Welcome to the Smoke Pit. Joining us today again, Garrett Jones, best-selling author and the co-writer of the new hit film MVP, just debuted and executive produced by Sylvester Stallone, involved uh, Nate Boyer, Jay Glazer, just a, a ton of people, Randy Couture, absolutely phenomenal project. Welcome, Garrett, joining us from all the way from Wales, I believe. Yeah, thanks for the invite, bro. And uh, I believe today is a historic event, a historic occasion. It's the first time we've done a podcast together when I've been sober. <laughs> so, um, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, Garrett um, has been on the po- on the smoke pit before, and I have been on uh, his podcast, Veteran State of Mind. Uh, make sure you guys check that out as well. I, I remember doing our little pensive photo shoot in Norway mm-hmm. after we recorded. Got the good lighting and the angles and the right amount of thousand yards there. Like he was at bro, you're at 998 yards. I need a thousand yards. <laughs> we got that. We got there. So uh, tell us about uh, your, your, your new movie. Um, Yeah, dude. I mean, it kind of snuck up on me, honestly. Um, I remember at the time um, when I, so I, I kind of like to rewind and to give a shout out to uh, Tim from the veterans project, which is super cool. Uh, project that everyone should check out he just said to me like you need to meet up with this guy nate boyer um he's getting involved with like a lot of artistic endeavors so to speak um and i was out in the states but anyone doesn't know the the charity mvp um or anyone doesn't know nate nate was a green beret and then he went on to play for the uh, texas longhorns um and then he went to uh the nfl became the oldest rookie in the nfl at 34 years old which is you know someone who's now 39 years old and has no use of his knees and back and everything. I can say that that's a, a hell of an achievement, being able to like hang out with people who were just coming straight from college. Um, and like Nate realized that there was a lot of parallels between what happens when um, veterans leave the service and what happens when athletes kind of leave the field. Um, you know, and like there's a line, and we, we got Tony Gonzalez in the movie. We got a few cameos, people playing themselves, like you mentioned, Randy Couture, he's in there, Tony Gonzalez, we've got Michael Strahan, a few other. Um, kind of people we could talk a bit about how good NFL Network and people were to us, but um, yeah, essentially Nate realized that like a lot of these like these things that we go through, um, when you go through problems when you leave the military, people assume PTSD, and when you go through problems after playing football, people assume it's like some some kind of like concussion thing. Whereas a lot of the time, what it really is is an identity crisis. Um, you've probably grown up wanting to be a football player, you've grown up wanting to be a marine or a soldier, and then you like for a lot of us, you know, you leave in your late twenties, mid twenties. Um, maybe if so, even if someone does like the twenty years, you're still in like your late thirties, um, and then you've got you know half your life ahead of you, and you're just like, what the hell do I do? So Nate kind of identified that there was this um, commonality between the two professions, and um, you know the the great thing about America is you know you, people look up to veterans sometimes too much, honestly, um, and I think the same could be said to athletes. We look up to athletes too much maybe as well but when you put the two of them in a room together you know you've got one group telling the other group that they respect them and that, that kind of means a lot but it's also like what they do at mvp is they just get people together and they break a sweat together and i think there's a lot to be um there's a lot to be said for you know there's like talking is great but getting on the mats with each other hitting some pads with each other and running around with each other you know does a lot to kind of form bonds and make you feel a part of something again um, so they, they, yeah. they've been doing great work. And I, so I went out to one of these sessions. Uh, it takes place in Unbreakable Gym. Anyone that knows Hollywood, it's the, um, you know, Pink Taco. It's just behind there. Um, 
And it's owned by Jay Glazer, and he opens the place up to veterans on a Wednesday afternoon, I believe it is. Um, now they spread all, all, all over the country as well. Um, and, um, yeah, I went down to a session. I had a few ideas to pitch to Nate anyway. But then, like, the more I kind of got to know about the, the project, I was like, dude, like, we need to do, like, a, a kind of, like, a fictionalized origin story about, you know, about what you kind of got, got going on here. Um, and, like, 40 hours later, we had the first draft. Um, I was lucky at the time I had a friend who was letting me use his place up in Hollywood, so I was just up the road from Nate. So it was really t it was tough, bro. We sat by the pool, we drank beers, and we wrote a script. It was <laughs> the hardship that, that we went through was unreal. Uh, and then yeah, Nate's man. one of these guys. Like he, he Nate's, Nate's one of these guys, bro. He he gets into places like water can't get. You know, before you knew it, he had um, uh, Braden Aftergood, who's the producer behind uh, Wind River and Hello High Water. Uh, he was on board. He's Sly Stallone's partner. Um, at Balboa Productions, and they wanted to get behind the film. And then Nate does what Nate does, and uh, he corralled people in. We had Wiz Khalifa do a track for the movie, um, oh, wow. just because he, yeah, because he believed in the cause. Um, NFL Network lets film on the on their set. Um, Michael Strahan gave us his time. Howie Long gave us his time. You know, we had like some cameos from great guys. Um, Randy Couture is actually he heads up one of the chapters. He heads up the Vegas chapter of MVP, um, which is wow. super cool. As an aside, yeah. I actually ended up sitting next to Randy Couture on a flight out of Vegas. No and, joke. Um, <laughs> no, no joke. I was the last person to get on the plane. I hadn't been to bed like three days. And I sat next to him. I'm like, hey, you're in the movie I did with Nate. And he kind of looked at me. You're like, you okay? I'm like, nope. <laughs> He's like, sleep, bro. So he kind of like puts me to sleep. <laughs> and I wake up on the other side. He's just like, like with, he's just with like, like a figure, at me. like a with like a headlock. He puts you to sleep. Oh, or? Yeah. He was like this. This guy. <laughs> this guy has had way too much Vegas. Um, he's like, but like we land on, we, yeah, just and like, dreams you know, now. You, like, yeah. And I woke. I was probably like all twitchy. Um, I woke up on the other side, and he's just kind of still laughing. He was really cool. Really cool guy. Um, I mean, a mate. Just I, I was a fan of Randy. Like I, you know, I. Don't really follow the UFC that much now, but like while I was in, while I was serving, it was something that we'd all watch, you know, together. Yeah. So to have him on, it was pretty unreal. And same with Tony Gonzalez, you know, um, you know, that's somebody who I always enjoyed. Best tight end uh, ever play the game. Yeah, ever played the game, bro. And um, I heard that he was like, I was because I actually listened to his podcast and I heard he wants to get into acting, and so I um did a little bit of sneaky. I basically lifted some of the stuff that he'd said word to word from his thing and put it in the script. So we said to him, he's like, this really speaks to me. It's like, yeah, it's because it's your, your words, bro. But he's a great, he's a great dude. Um, <laughs> I'm really, really happy with him doing his time. And yeah, Nate kind of took the ball and ran with it to use a pun. And um, my involvement largely kind of finished about, you know, we do rewrites and stuff, but re really we wrote the film like five years ago and then it was, down to Nate, his kind of determination to get the thing done. Um, yeah. Shot it on a really low budget. Um, and the reason we were able to do that was because of the generosity of people like NFL Network, um, you know, Jay Glazer giving us his gym to film in, that kind of thing. And um, we uh, premiered it in um, Hollywood in September, which was fun. And, um, and then yesterday, which was the Veterans Day, um, it came out on demand on Prime, iTunes, and I think YouTube. Um, I can actually watch it because I'm in the States. Well, you can watch it over here. You've got to use a VPN um, to watch it. But it's just been really cool, bro. Allegedly. Like the, yeah. So, like, it's it's been really kind of cool um, to do it. As with anything, you're very nervous when you put out a piece of work because, you know, you think, like, 
you know, and it's the same, like we wrote it five years ago. So if I was to yeah. do it again today, it would be very, you know, it would be different, but the, yeah, I didn't see one TikTok reference or anything. You're behind the times, <laughs> man. Yeah. There's no TikTok, no TikTok references. I didn't, I didn't plug my only fans. It was, you know, pretty, <laughs> pretty poor effort, but, um, only guess, oh, you know, it was, yeah, we, when we had, we had the premiere and, um, there was a Q and A at the end of it, and one of the people involved in the Q and A, her brother had, um, he was a marine who took his life, um, and um, she she actually played her she played herself in the in the movie, and um, you know she said that it, she, it helped her understand why her brother had done what he did, um, and that meant a lot. And to be honest, at that point, then I was like, well, I don't give a fuck what anyone else says. You know, it's it's done it's it's done its job. Well, it is currently sitting at a nine point one out of ten on IMBD. So you know, well done. Well, fuck whoever gave it less than 10, is all I can say. <laughs> I will find you. I will make you I eat your own feces. And I will end you. <laughs> I have a set of skills which involve drinking and making you eat feces. Yep. And uh, so there, there are a lot of interesting uh, uh, behind-the-scenes facts um, about, the, uh, about the movie. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, Wiz Khalifa uh, put a track down and that they're all, you know, these uh, you know, really – really important and busy people who you know gave their time and their energy and their efforts to making the um, the the film happen but one of the things that i find the most interesting is um that every veteran that was depicted on screen was played by an actual veteran and they can actually act which is which was great you know it's yeah it, it wasn't one of those things of we're gonna like throw veterans in for the sake of throwing veterans in so i mean it's written yeah. by veterans it's directed by a veteran um you know the a lot of the um some of the music um was produced uh, uh people are familiar with tofa he produced some of the tracks on it he's an yeah, air force tofa has been on the podcast oh he's a good good dude and like yeah. so he did i think he did two tracks for it um and like you said a lot of the actors were veterans so we try to get veterans in wherever possible but it wasn't just like all right you're a veteran here's the job it's like you still have to earn the job um but i i, I think that definitely kind of gave it um it certainly made me a lot more comfortable when veterans were willing to put their name to it, you know, um, because I mean, as well, like there are differences between British and veterans as much as we do have in common. Um, I don't this isn't a disparaging remark, but I think there's a bit more sentimentality around it in America, um, which is good and bad in some ways. I think, um, yeah. I think in the UK it is viewed a bit more as, and it is changing to be honest, because as with everything, America leads the way on things. So I do, I do feel like it's changing here in the UK, but, um, and I think I, part of that a, is. Because, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say I don't think it's a film that would have worked um, in Britain. I think it's, it is a very is an American film, which I love because I am transatlantic. I am a, I am a yeah. British person. I was born into a British body, but I identify as an American. So, you know, yeah. identify as a drunk man in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, say drunk. I think part of that is uh, the fact where uh, America kind of made the. Um, uh, the, they parted ways from Armistice Day. And, you know, there's Armistice Day, there's Remembrance Day um, that is uh, observed in our, our allied uh, partners. And, you know, these are very solemn occasions. You know, everything is very, it's kind of depressing, if I, if I might say so. <laughs> I think obviously for good reason, because, you know, you know the, the wars were, were disastrous. You know, they, they wrecked the generation. You know, in America, you know, we kind of made the switch to Veterans Day and it kind of turned into more of a celebration and it kind of turned into uh, a, 
a holiday and then you know you kind of turn that in with american commercialism where it's just like oh now we have an excuse to give an extra discount for you know these this used car lot or now the you know electronic store you know has a, a, a gimmick to pitch like oh for this veterans day we're given this and then you know one of the uh the, the straws that kind of broke the camel back as far as the way of separation is we started to have in places like Applebee's and Chili's giving out small free meals on, on Veterans Day. And it kind of completely uh, changed the course of the way we think about the holiday here in the States. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's an interesting one because it was the same war. I mean, don't get me wrong. You guys came off the bench pretty late, but, you know, won't hold yeah. that against you. Um, but no, I mean... Every village you go to in the UK has a memorial with like a hundred names on it, you know. So, like you said, like you know, it, it really did kind of wipe out almost an entire generation of young men, um, especially in the First World War, and then to a lesser extent in the Second World War, but still to a massive degree. I mean, um, so it's something that is it is a somber occasion, but I think that we do it right because. Mm -hmm. is like it's like you know the the big um the remembrance event held at the albert hall it's the festival of remembrance you know and there's uh, you know i've been i've been lucky enough to, to go down to one of those festivals and there's moments down there that'll you know someone's chopping onions and you're you know trying to keep your best stoic face going but then there's bits like the royal marines band will come out and you're like yeah you know bumping <laughs> along to some great band music so it's yeah it's it's you know it is it's a um, remembrance you know you're remembering the war dead but at the same time you're celebrating what they gave you um, and even as someone who's quite cynical about the causes of war um, I still you know that does not detract at all from remembering what people went and did um, you know they did go they went for their country you know and you people can pick apart why that was but the intentions of the people who went were pure and um, they need to be remembered for that. And um, yeah. I think there's been, um, there's been a bit of a resurgence. I think Iraq and Afghanistan kind of brought it back into, because you had this new generation of veterans who'd actually seen war and that's not to disparage anybody who was in Northern Ireland or anything like that, but Northern Ireland kind of had this because it was on British soil and things. I think there was always a bit of a, um, a bit of a like a bit of ill feeling around it, which kind of still persists because it's you know it's though again those guys went and did their best you know their their best in remarkably different uh, difficult circumstances. But I I feel like Afghanistan especially was a war where people were like oh it's like and again you can you know break this down but the public perception was good guys bad guys. Yeah. Um, that poor kind of different people, than like something with like the Falklands. Yeah, I mean the Falklands, another good one. The thing is, the Falklands, it was over quite quick, and it what it didn't involve, like you know, there was it was only like a small percentage of the military that went down there. Where it's like, mm -hmm. you know, Afghanistan, you know, lasted long enough that every regiment kind of went through there, um, and because yeah. we recruit quite quite locally, that meant that every town has some kind of connection to it. Like you're gonna find, you're not gonna find Falklands veterans like everywhere across the UK in the same way that you'll find Afghanistan veterans everywhere across the UK. But I, I think one of the things with um, Afghanistan and Iraq is, you know, units came back and they marched through the towns and it was, it was out in the open. And we're also a generation that, you know, we have podcasts, we're more willing to speak about things. Whereas I think in the past, it was still that kind of attitude of you go off, you do it. And like, you just, you, you keep quiet about it. Um, I actually met, 
a Falcons veteran who's on the Sir Galahad, which is a ship that got bombed um, while the troops were still on board. A horrific incident. And, um, you know, I said to him, I was like, like, you know, obviously no pressure, but if he ever wanted to come and talk on the podcast, no, 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 just, no. But I mean, he had no problem talking about it in the pub, you know, but it was that next step to like talking about it in the pub was one thing, but taking the step to, it's like, wouldn't want to publicly talk about it because I think they still feel that it's like, that's, that's just not the done thing, which I, you know, I understand. I can totally understand the reasoning behind that. Um, the problem with that is if you don't talk about something, you can't expect then the public to know about it and to show up for events like Remembrance Day um, because why would they if they don't understand it if they've never talked about it or heard about it if they don't have the uh, the direct connection to it mm -hmm. it's harder for them to care essentially yeah exactly and like you know it's just the same as anything if somebody doesn't talk about some like very recently I've kind of like you know I've been I've been fortunate that none of my friends of my age group have suffered from say cancer and things and then in, in this last year, I've met a couple of people who have, and now, now that's more on my mind because all of a sudden I have a direct connection that involves people that I care about. And, um, you know, that's just, that's just life. It's, it's nothing, it doesn't, it's nothing disparaging from the civilian population. If they don't know, they don't know. And that goes for the same of us of, of, of everything. And I, I think that's a very good, um, uh, point to make where, where you care about things that you have more of a direct connection to and, uh, so whether it's, you know, your, your friend's mental health or whether it's their successes or their failures, uh, you know, having that direct connection is, it makes it a little bit easier to care about because kind of like, you know, if I see like a random baby picture on online, it's just like a oh, baby, I don't care, you know, like good for you. <laughs> but if it's my friend who had the baby, I'm like, Hey, happy for you. You know, like now mm -hmm. it's not as weird to get excited. Yeah. But you yeah, having that, that direct connection to, uh, to somebody uh, kind of makes all the difference. Like, for example, um, I have read um, Brothers in Arms. I've read Legion. I've read Sugarman. Um, I have watched MVP. Like, you know, these are all things that you have done. You know, these are the books that you have written or movies that you have written. And you know, having that that direct connection to you made me seek out those things and read them. And I got to enjoy the craftsmanship and the, the quality of work behind it as were perhaps maybe I had never heard of those books because we hadn't been introduced or something. I maybe wouldn't have had the chance to, um, to enjoy those, but it's kind of weird because like, since you and I have been friends for years reading your books, like I can almost kind of feel like when you're smirking at certain lines mm -hmm. <laughs> or like when there's certain anger in certain parts, you know? Oh mate, like I don't read back the books that I've done, but obviously I can remember them and I know yeah. But if you take the first book and kind of work to the newest, the anger levels probably come down quite a bit. Like I just did, um, I can't really say what the book was yet because I, I wrote it with somebody else. But all I'll say is I did a book um, this summer that we're just kind of wrapping up at the moment, um, which really kind of just made me see things in a bigger picture. And it's like the last couple of years, you know, I was getting quite, very angry about we you know we had like the rolling lockdowns and stuff here and things and it was you know it was making me very kind of angry and it's, it's been great to do this project over the summer because it's really kind of made me feel like i really don't have any problems you know it's like you know my like everyone has problems that they can point to right and things are and things are relative so if something's a big deal to you it's a big deal to you but that's why it's like really kind of um it's great to work on something that just gives you that perspective and just kind of be like, okay, yeah, well, yeah, I might have some things going on, but it could be way worse. Yeah. 
And it's uh, it's been particularly difficult over the last few years because, you know, as MVP demonstrates, sometimes having that um, that environment, that locker room, uh, that um, uh, sense of community where you can hang out with other people, you can share your uh, your thoughts and your feelings and be in a like minded uh, environment can really be therapeutic for a lot of people. And so with a lot of the lockdowns and the way that the the world has been recently, it's been harder to do that. And so I would say generally uh, the mental health of our community, you know, the, the combat veteran community, the veteran community, first responder community, um, you know, people who kind of have that, you know, um, others over self um, mindset in, in their, uh, their profession has suffered because you haven't had the ability to come together and to commiserate and to vent and to laugh as much as we have had in previous years. Yeah, and that's a very human thing too. I mean, you know, in the UK, suicide rates went up, uh, alcoholism went up, drug abuse went up, uh, domestic violence went up. You know, so it's a it's a human need to get together and vent and to laugh and to have all these, you know, like there's, there's a reason that like pubs and bars have become so fucking popular and institutionalized in our, in our cultures because people need to get together. And whether it's like, you know. No man is an island. To, no, no man is an island, not even the rock. And he is pretty island like. Um, but, like, you know, you, whether it's, you know, telling your sob story to a, a barmaid or like just meeting some random people and becoming best friends and then never speaking to them again, you know, like we're social creatures. Um, and so I don't blame myself or anyone else for getting more angry or for getting these gray hairs in the beard that you pointed out earlier. You know, it's just. <laughs> hey, I didn't say that on air. <laughs> you <outed> yourself. <laughs> Well, people need to know who you really are. Um, so it's, it's you know, but they make you look distinguished, mate. So, but no, yeah. it's, it's it's cool, mate. It's like where anything, you know, you go through something, you come out the other side and there's pros and cons from it. You know, you, some things you were taken away and then you, whenever something's taken away from you, you get given something in return if, if you're willing to be open to it. Mm. And we had uh, spoken in the past um, about the concept uh, that there is kind of a particular sense of humor and a certain bond that you get from being around other veterans that uh, you may not always necessarily get from other people. And one of the things that you had spoken to in your your book, Brothers of Arms, is that sometimes that people will take your biggest insecurity and turn it into your mm -hmm. nickname. Oh yeah, and it's kind of it's kind of good because you have to face it and you face something over and over, and it it doesn't hurt as bad. It doesn't. It doesn't sting as much when when you hear it so often, but at the same time, it's because you have that sense of um, brotherhood that they're allowed to say those things. Somebody else could call out your biggest insecurity, and it's just like, ah, you got me. But then you know, somebody at a pub says that, and then now it comes to fisticuffs. Yeah, and I feel like that's something that existed um, when you know jobs across society were maybe more tough and formed a bond like if you were working in a steelworks or a coal mine or something like that mm. i feel like that would that had that same sense of hardship therefore it had that same kind of community and things and you know without trying to sound like too like old man about it i do think that like it's like most things you know there's like the you know lockdowns and stuff as much as i didn't agree with them i could understand maybe some of the ideas behind them you know and the same with um, you know, these things about not like in the army now, you know, they're trying to cut back on quote unquote banter because some people get upset by it. And I, and I think those are like laudable goals, but at the same time, 
these things exist for you know a, a reason right and my thing with the military has always been like if you can't take insults from your friends you're definitely not going to deal well with taking fire from an enemy because that is very personal um and i i, I do think um I think the kind of behavior that we know Marines and infantry guys for, you know, the, you know, the kind of things that go in the barracks, those things I think have developed and existed for a reason. And I've always said, like, if you can't piss on your mate's leg in the shower, you know, how are you going to stick your fist in his fucking leg when half his leg's missing and you're trying to plug the arterial wound? You know, it's, yeah. I, I, I think that these things have developed for a reason and we kind of, we kind of get rid of them uh, at our peril. And it's not a thing of like making people soft. It's just like, well, hang on a minute. This thing, this thing has been around for a long time. Okay, yeah, there's a few people who take it very uh, badly, and we need to look out for those people. But maybe there's a reason behind this, which isn't just that it's funny, which it is. But maybe there's a reason behind this, which is actually um, kind of necessary for us to perform our mission. That's very true. You mentioned in the forward of Brothers of Arms that in hindsight, maybe some of the jokes and some of the banter uh, would not be considered um, appropriate in these days, but you didn't want to change things. You wanted it to really hold true to the way that the conversations actually were, because that's how it was in the time. And you know, obviously I'm paraphrasing, but at the at the end of the day, it was important to acknowledge that these jokes were being made for a reason. This is what the culture was like at the time. This is what was appropriate at the time. This was what was permissible because of the relationship between the people um, um, in the firm. And just like uh, it was okay then. And so to go back now and look at it through a, a politically correct lens and try to judge it or try to change it would not be authentic to the sacrifices that um, you guys were making in the time. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the other thing that I kind of like push back with the editor on is like, this book is about killing people. Mm. Like it's about as offensive as it gets. And that's kind of the funny thing. It's like when it comes to the book, they're never like, oh, well, can we take out these stories about killing people? It's like, well, can we take out this like insult that he used to this guy? It's like, you know, this book is about taking another human being's life, you know, like that. <laughs> it kind of seems like if, if we're willing to do that, then making a joke about somebody's race or their sexual orientation or their looks or whatever it is, probably not that big of a deal compared to the fact that we're killing people. Yeah. And it's, uh, uh it, it, it was kind of refreshing to uh, read some of these things because so much of the content that we consume today is put through the, the politically correct meat grinder and then the product that is formed and shaped and packaged and shipped off has to meet these quality control standards. And there, there was a few times where I would hit pause on the, uh, on the audio book and just kind of chuckle to myself, or I would text somebody because it would spark a memory of a similar situation, uh, that, that I was in. And so it, 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 it was refreshing. It was a bit of a balm, a soft, if you will, on the, the, the hurt that still exists in my soul. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you say that, bro. Except the hurt on your soul bit, but you know, one of the reasons I did the a little sad, was, mostly good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's like, you know, I wasn't special forces. I I didn't fucking I wasn't the first man on the balcony on the Iranian embassy or anything like that. But then most of us weren't, and I thought it's most of us were trudging around the same bit of ground, poking around for IEDs, occasionally getting in a firefight. You know, I've, and and that was the reality for the majority of infantry soldiers who went through Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, that was our reality. The the day in, day out, 
go out, look for shit, hopefully not get blown up, come back, do it tomorrow. Um, and like that, that was one of the reasons I wanted to do the book. It's one of my, some of my favorite books, the second world war, you know, they're not the books about the SAS in, you know, Libya and stuff. As, as much as I enjoy those stories, someone was just these guys, there's a guy, uh, George McDonald Fraser, great author, um, Lance Corporal in the second world war in Burma. And, you know, he was a part of these masterful battles, um, conducted by general slim and, you know, now you look at it and you you know the historians will break down like all these kind of like masterful kind of strokes and feats of logistics and you know kind of kind of like the the way that he took on this powerful japanese army but for the blokes who were there at the time all they knew that they were trudging through the jungle and occasionally getting shot at you know so it's like we we kind of lose um like if it's not for people like george mcdonald fraser we lose what it was like that battle you know it they'll come out at the end there was fifty thousand troops involved and there was 500 casualties or whatever like that. And then it's like, yeah, well, but what was it like for that guy who was hacking his way through the jungle and then occasionally like being like, oh, fuck, it's a Jap. You know, like that, that, those are the kind of things that's always fascinated me. I mean, the big picture fascinates me too, don't get me wrong, but it means nothing without the experiences of the guys involved. Like that to me is, it's why I wrote Legion because we have no records from your average Roman soldier. I mean, I would fucking kill to read an account of a guy who'd followed Caesar around on campaign. We have Caesar's accounts, but we don't have any of the guys that actually held the shields and did the stabby stab stab. And you know, those are the guys that I'd really like to hear from. Yeah. To, um, to find out what it was really like. And uh, so you narrated uh, brothers in arms. And so when I, I queued up the audio book for, for Legion, I was kind of expecting to hear your uh, sultry tones come through mm -hmm. uh, my, my headphones uh, but it, but it wasn't, and I gotta say, uh, no, obviously, no disrespect to you, but the guy who uh, who narrated Legion might possibly have the sexiest voice I've ever heard. You know, he's like, have a guess what his nationality is. Not a clue. He's actually an American. Is he? But yeah, oh, but so you're telling me great... that he's not Roman. No, he lives in California. <laughs> but he was great, Jared, Jared Lamaster. Um, really, really cool, super cool dude. Um, so, and I actually. Um, I actually self-published Legion originally and self-published the audiobook. So that was all kind of like, that was my little experiment. It's now with a publisher. Um, I did the first couple of books in the Roman series with Penguin. And then I was just kind of like, you know what, I'm going to try doing one of my own because, you know, a bit of an ego and I think like I could probably do it better. Um, and um, it, was, it, was, it was cool, bro. But like the narrating Brothers in Arms, um, I felt like that was important because it was a personal book, but that will probably be the one and only book that I ever narrate. It was not a process that I enjoyed. I can I can imagine that uh, it's not because just going back and like having to edit these podcasts and listen to my own voice uh, for hours and hours on end uh, kind of makes me want to repaint the wall. But <laughs> well, we had we had editors, but you're basically you're sitting in a goldfish bowl with three total strangers looking at you as you reread your most intimate, painful moments of your life, um, was, <laughs> and like, you do it for three days. Um, and when we finished it, I got on a plane. I disappeared to Edinburgh for three days. Um, um, you know, so uh, it was like it was very emotionally draining. Um, it's yeah. it's emotionally draining to write um, something that's personal, but I discovered that it's a lot more draining to then reread it, especially with like strangers looking at you. Oh, and don't get me wrong, they were fucking fantastic, but you but know, still. they they may, but but still, you know. Um, and yeah, the like, doctor might time... be super professional, but if I got to spread my cheeks for a hemorrhoid again, <laughs> it's still going to be a little uncomfortable and a little personal. That's probably a great analogy for it. That's kind of how it felt.
<laughs> so um, I have book and book, book two and three of the Raven and Eagle series uh, on the way. Uh, because after I finished reading Legion, I was just like, you know, I uh, it wasn't a super cliffhanger that it was left on. Like it, it was like a satisfying conclusion, but I was I'm definitely very interested to see where the uh, the, uh, the the story goes from there. And so the idea that you wrote this book uh, from the perspective of somebody who was in the Legion, somebody who was on the ground. Uh, and not like, you know, some high fluting commander, but, you know, from somebody, like you said, that, you know, had the shield and the sword. Um, where did you feel like you drew most of your inspiration for that? Um, honestly, bro, I think it came from reading a... I'm really into reading memoirs from enlisted personnel, um, Vietnam memoirs, memoirs, uh, Second World War memoirs, you know, to up until our wars. Um, and unfortunately, like there's not that there's a there's a great uh, book called I think Recollections of Rifleman Harris, which is a Napoleonic Wars one. Uh, but it's very hard to find enlisted accounts past the First World War. Mm. Um, but what I kind of realized reading them was that I'm very much a believer of even though the wars changed, um, the spirit of the soldier just seems to me. I've just read an, a, enough at this point to convince me that the character of soldiers doesn't really change that much over time. Um, and why would it? I mean, humans are humans. It's one of the things I got. So like my character, he doesn't have like necessarily PTSD. People want to put a label on it. But he is somebody that questions what they're doing and definitely suffers from the loss of comrades. And, you know, I have people push back in the historical community like, oh, there's no evidence that Roman soldiers have PTSD. Well, yeah, we also have no accounts from Roman soldiers. So like the idea that there's not, I'm like, we didn't even talk about it with the First World War generation, the Second World War generation. So they're like, well, yeah. there's, there's no evidence of it. And my, my thing is, um, um, I looked at uh, Mexico, where violence is endemic in a lot of the parts. And, um, you know, you've got kids growing up finding bodies with the fucking heads and arms and stuff chopped off. And actually, in those areas now, PTSD is endemic as well as the violence. So I think this idea that, you know, it's, uh, the other one is like, say, child mortality. Um, people always say like, well, people used to use kids, so they were used to losing people. And there's, there's a difference between being used to losing people and okay with losing people. Like, if we were okay with the fact that our babies used to die all the time, why would we have put in all the effort we did to reduce infant mortality? It doesn't make sense, you know? Yeah. We reduced it because it was an issue to people. And again, you can find accounts from people, um, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, who lost their kids and were never the same people again. And... You know, it yeah. happened to mothers in the Second World War. They lost their kids. Uh, sorry, First World War. They lost their kids. They were never the same again. So and I think the idea... Other... So, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just saying no, real I was quick, just if you say look through like, certain historical texts um, that uh, that have are really old, like, you know, for various religious texts or various, um, uh, you know, older ancient texts, there are examples of parents being very distraught about their children uh, passing. Yeah, ex exactly. And why wouldn't they believe? Like... I think people get this idea that we're different human beings now. And I think it's, especially if you've been on fucking operations, you see that people, it's, yeah, we can be different to a degree when we're living in the West and we have a lot of these things. But like, you start to take, like, what's that thing? Like, we're only like three meals away from anarchy or something. Yeah. You know, I mean, fuck, bro. We saw people fighting over toilet paper. Like, we really are not different people to who we were 2,000 years ago. If I was to put on, in, in our local football club here, if I was to put on Gladiator fight, Fights tomorrow, 
I would sell out that fucking stadium in an hour. You know, people <laughs> like look at the movie. Look at the movies that we watch. Look at everything is about action. Everything is about violence. Not everything, but a high proportion. Of, you know, and like people are people, and people have been people for a long time. And I'm a big believer. If you took a marine now and dropped him in a Roman section uh, two thousand years ago, eventually, you know, it would be a bit different. But he'd find his feet. And I think if you took a Roman and dropped him in a marine section, he'd find his feet. Well, that's particularly true because we get people from all over the world who um, uh, are are still trying to learn English as their second language, and they get dropped into Paris Island or San Diego, and they find their feet. You know, right. we've had I've served with guys that they're like, yeah, you know, I I left Guatemala to escape gang violence when I was six, and now they're in the military, and they're just like anybody else in their unit. Or yeah, you know, we, um, you know, my my parents fled Vietnam during the evacuation. And we moved to America because, you know, we didn't want to be under that regime. And, you know, now they're joining the U.S. military and you know, no different than anyone else. And I, so I, I completely agree with you that there would be a little bit of a learning curve. But then you kind of assimilate into the tribe. And I think it's also telling that you can have some you know kid from uh, a village or a town uh, that has never seen any violence that, you know, grew up with mom, dad, three square meals a day. And then they're serving right next to somebody who grew up in, uh, in an inner city and they had experienced violence and, um, and, and hardships. And then within a few months of being on tour, you, could, you can't really tell them apart. They're both kind of salty now and they kind of have the same conditioning and seasoning where their, their origins are vastly different. And I think that is really kind of well highlighted in Legion where you have, you know, the, the Roman soldiers who are the professional soldiers, you know, they're the ones who do that for a living and they're good at it and then you have the uh the rebels that are in the area that they're not professional soldiers the way that they interact with each other the way that they fight their discipline that's different but then as the campaigns and the battles progress you can kind of see the rebels starting to function more like the professional soldiers because you have to temper that steel for it to survive right and i, I think that's the other thing as well when you write in um historical fiction is you know the principles of war haven't changed you know that the principles of war haven't changed and you know we think of like we think of guerrilla war and we think of we kind of think of it being invented in like you know the vietnam war or you know kind of like the end of empire and things and really like look if you were taking on the roman army which was at the time you know the most professional well-disciplined like almost unbeatable in the field mm -hmm. and you were a rebel army well you're not going to try and meet them on their own terms you're going to harass supply lines. You're going to try and murder people when they go out for a drink. It's going to be all that kind of stuff. And that might not be documented, but you can bet your house on it that that's going to, what's going to happen because why, why wouldn't it have, why wouldn't it have happened? And there's a few accounts yeah. that kind of, there's a, there's a few accounts from, so the, the period I wrote about was like a bit of a little known period. It's like right at the early Imperial days and it all took around, it took place around um, Bosnia and these kind of areas. And, you know, you've got these mountainous areas with, like, really steep passes. It's perfect guerrilla um, territory. And, you know, these historians from the, the period, people like Tactus, they they reference the fact that it was a long, drawn-out bloody war. Well, why was it a long, drawn-out bloody war? Because very rarely would the rebels actually come to battle, you know? But the Romans yeah. had to deploy. I think at the peak, they had 15 legions there, which is about oh, half of wow. all the available Roman strength. Yeah, I think it was 15 yeah. at the peak um and then generals being small generals. area yeah it was exactly bro. we're talking about a small area Fewer but like legions they had conquered to. way more in other examples you know 
Exactly, but very rarely in that like um, that period um, was was there actually there was a couple of pitch battles, but it was pretty rare. Generally speaking, but you know, it drew, drew on. It was bloody. It would have been burn. You know, it would have been patrol patrol the mountain pass, hold a pass open, burn a village, get attacked at you know get attacked at night, lose a couple of blokes. It would have been that kind of that brutal guerrilla war. And um, you know, again, I, 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 yes, I'm kind of filling in blanks, but it's filling in blanks from just looking at the kind of the history that we have available to us modern and ancient and just thinking like well what is the likely thing to have gone on here because there are plenty of examples of people who tried to stand toe-to-toe with roman legions in open battle and failed miserably and so if you are looking historically speaking the majority of the people who did that particularly in the time period that you're rest uh, that you're referencing they lost so you're absolutely right what is the the most probable course of action that occurred if uh, a smaller in, uh, enemy force was able to sustain a long, um, uh, a long bloody campaign. And you look at other references in history where we kind of have like Afghanistan and I, I try not to get mad at things, but you know, you, you see these kids that, you know, are you know, on online and they talk about like, Oh yeah, like America lost in Afghanistan. I was like, I don't, I don't think that you can say that the military lost. Like, oh, you know, farmers with, with bolt-action rifles destroyed the most powerful military. I'm like, no, they didn't. We lost Yeah, they didn't destroy, yeah, they didn't destroy the military, but they definitely outlasted yeah. it and outlasted yeah. the political willpower. And that was exactly. kind of what happened in, in this Roman war because much like Iraq where one minute it's like, hey, this week uh, we got the Sunnis on our side. And then next week it's like, no, no, now it's the Shias on our side. Yeah. Um, this, war was the, which, this war was the same. Um you had these different tribes who would they they would actually go to war with each other at times during the time they were at war with Russia, uh, with Russia with Rome. They would also go to war with each other, and that was kind of how the war was won in the end was was because these these tribes ended up disagreeing and, and going to war with each other, and Rome kind of leaned on that. But I think it says a lot that they ended up um, granting clemency to the um, to the rebels in the end and to the um, rebel general. And he ended up seeing out his days in in Italy. Now they're not going to do that if they're in a position of domination. You know that is a well. It's kind of like what we've done in Iraq. You know, like we fucking Muqtada al Sadr. I mean, how many of his like how many American and British lives were lost to the Jaysh Ahmadi? A fucking lot. But mm-hmm. then we kind of like okay, well now we got to do business with this guy. You know, you got to be pragmatic about it. And same as kind of we've done in Afghanistan. And I mean, gosh, look at us! Like uh, a couple hundred years ago, uh, the you know the crown was not too happy with the colonies, and now you know we follow to each other into a dozen different conflicts. That's and it, so allegiances shift very easily in politics, and I think that is one of the reason why America has been able to be the way that it is, is because America has a very long history of turning enemies into allies countries that we have fought against at one point in time have become some of our greatest allies and moving forward the possibility of like imagine you know god forbid where there's another large-scale campaign like imagine being just like an old man and turning on the news and it's just like you know the the taliban has sent four battalions of marines to reinforce an army ranger regiment off the coast of antarctica and it's just like how, how mind-blowing would that be you know well, I mean, look, man, their forerunners were our allies, <laughs> like, so in the <laughs> 80s, I mean, it's really not, like, it's really not that much of a thing, but, I, like, I, I do think, like, Iraq is a great example of it, 
um the shift in like you know just the way we, we teamed up with the sunnies when it suited us we teamed up with the shears when it suited us um and then again in syria same kind of thing happened you know we're sending yeah. weapons to we're sending weapons to al-qaeda affiliated like units out there i mean yeah it's taking it back 20 30 years you know at one point in time we're backing iraq another point in time we're backing iran they go to war a million people die and it's just like you know i i think that if america maybe stopped meddling as much in other affairs we'd all be better off but at the same time it's just like you don't stay on top by being reactive you stay on top by being uh proactive and maybe those schemes kind of help our way of life a little bit in kind of a, a very backhanded sort of way but at the same time like it if as a citizen you look at where the money's going where our troops are going where our efforts are going where our political endeavors are going and you have questions and so i i know that you feel very passionate about this how do you reconcile the difference between loving your country and loving the people you served with but not agreeing with the policy that necessarily sent your comrades into harm's way um, I think it comes down to recognizing the difference between patriotism and nationalism. You know, kind of nationalism is you think your country is the best on the planet. It's above all criticism. Anything it does is justified. Um, and I think patriotism means that you love your country. You're you're grateful for what you've got in your country. You're grateful for what people have built before you, which I certainly am. But it's the same way that you should look at yourself as a person and just say, like, look, I can love who I am, um, but I got work to do. And, like, some of the things I do are fucked up. And um, I think that, you know, if we never criticize the way things are done, we'd still be doing things the way that they were done a thousand years ago. Mm -hmm. So I think being self-critical, whether that's as a human being or as a nation, is, is incredibly important. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that the, the military is used for sometimes, let's say, less than honorable purposes. But I think, like you said, mate, like, when I look at, all I need to do is look at how we, so I have this conversation with civilian friends quite often, especially when it starts getting late after a few drinks, you know, people like, <laughs> you know, you know, like they're like, you know, wasn't well, it a bit fucked up that what you, the kind of country did and stuff interfere in these places? I'm like, well, yeah, it kind of is. But at the same time, what I can tell you is that when we went on patrol, we treated those kids and stuff and the locals better than the people that lived there did. And, you know, I think that is a, that's kind of how you got to look at it. Like I can say that we weren't going around doing the whole village. You know, we're going around giving the whole village fucking sweets, <laughs> you know, yeah. notebooks and pencils. And we generally cared. We cared, we cared about those people at the same time. We also have to admit that, um, you know, we cheered when we dropped bombs on people's houses and like a mud walled compound might not look like a house to us, but it's still a house. It's someone's home. And if someone had said to you like, Hey, we can do an A10 run on this place or we can just walk away and leave it. You'd be like a 10 run. And then A10. another one. Yeah. And then all the A10s. And then two bring, bring all the A10s. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. So like, you know, so we have to be honest about it as well. But, I, you know, at the end of the day, maybe that's kind of part of being young. Um, you don't think about those things. And if you did, you probably wouldn't be there. Um, there's a reason they recruit people young. It's not just the physical robustness. Um, a lot of it is like the lack of kind of mental maturity. Um, you know, like, <laughs> you wouldn't have got along very well if you're like, well, actually, somebody lives in that place and we shouldn't be dropping it. Shut up. Get the J down. Yeah, imagine the uh, the geopolitical ramifications of the region. We're bringing down property values, and <laughs> well, we're not just bringing know, down property the only values. We're literally destroying for, someone's you know, home, and they've had that home for hundreds of years, and now they're homeless. Um, 
but we all we all get our video cameras out and go woo because it is cool. Yeah, and like, somebody's just like, well, you shouldn't have let them shoot at us from your house, and it's not that simple at all. <laughs> yeah, you should have just let them shoot all your kids and then let us jade them in your house. I mean, fuck. Yeah, you should have got both. <laughs> and it's, it is a, a very uh, difficult thing to reconcile when you kind of think about the idea where you know, you, you look back at some of the lies that were told uh, by those in, in elected uh, office and some of the hypocrisies and whether it comes down to like one example where you had in your book where, you know, the, your chain of command had lied about the provisions that they were giving for uh, for holidays. And they were on the news talking about how they're taking care of the troops. But, you know, from that that rifleman perspective, that that just wasn't the case. And. So how do you reconcile the idea of being mad at hypocrisy and lies and mismanagement and incompetence, but then also just having a raging boner at the memory of some of the best firefights that you've been in? I think it just comes down to two things, like fair play and accountability. So we never expected to have a fucking Christmas dinner delivered to us in Helmand province. We don't expect that, but then don't lie and say mm. that that's what's happening, you know? Um, at the same time, with accountability, if we have a fucking negligent discharge, we get and find the month's pay because we should be accountable for that. And I've had this conversation with a friend before who didn't believe that that was a fair thing. And I said, well, I actually think that it is a fair thing because if you have a negligent discharge into your friend's fucking face, then, you know, that has changed that person's life forever, it's changed their family forever. So there should be, um, there should be a harsh punishment for it. There should also be a harsh punishment for an instance like the drone strike after the suicide bombing um, in Kabul, which mm. took out an entire family. There should be accountability for that. At the very least, people should resign or lose their positions. Um, you could make an argument that they should be worse than that. But at the very least, it should be, hey, we had this because, you know, they came out quite openly and said there was confirmation bias. You know, they could see kids on target for two minutes beforehand. They said that it was an immediate threat, but the guy's getting out of his car and going into a house, you know, miles away from the airport. There should be accountability for that. And I think we can have both. I don't think it reduces lethality by, by you know, I think, especially when you're fighting a insurgency where you're trying to get the population on your side, it should always be err on the side of caution. Unless we, we, we don't know that this guy, like we've seen a guy put, we've seen a guy doing some of the ground. Well, this is a fucking agricultural area. People do stuff in the ground. That's the nature yeah. of the area. Are we sure, like where is he? Where is he doing it? Is this a choke point where we go through all is all the time? You know, have we seen this guy before? You know, what kind of time of day is it? Like, are there other people around? Is it? Is he got like lookouts? Out? Like, let's look at the big picture. And if we're not sure, let's just err on the side of caution. We've seen where he is. We've seen so. Like, let's say he is implanting an ID. Well, we know where he is. So that IED right now is not a fucking threat to anybody because we know where it is. I mean, obviously, you could make the argument that someone's got to go and clear it, which is a fair argument. But if we go and fucking shoot one of the village elders now, the whole point of us being here, we've now lost that fucking village. That, that yeah. village is now sympathetic to the Taliban. And when the Taliban were rolling through Afghanistan and people were like, well, I can't believe how quick they're going through, kind of tried to explain to people, like, look, these people don't necessarily want the Taliban in charge. But you have to look at it from their perspective because most of the fighting in Afghanistan took place at the same places, right? You were in Sangin. I was up in Musakala. Those places were fought over all the time. And at some point, the, the village is just like, look, I get that these other people might be fucking harsher than you are, but I just want my house to not be a fucking front line anymore. And like, why wouldn't that be the fucking, why wouldn't that be the logical solution? Like, what are we willing to give up in this country 
you know, for democracy. Mm. We, we, weren't re we, we, we weren't even willing to really give a proper troop deployment. So how can we ask their civilians to live on a fucking front line for the best part of 20 years? It's just, it's, it's very kind of, um, it's very kind of like grandiose of us to think that the, it's like that these people would go through that when we're not willing to do it ourselves. It's like, well, you know, like we, we, we're not very good at putting ourselves in the shoes of like local populations. I, I, I completely agree with you. And I think that, um, when we talk about what's, uh, what's fair and what's right and you know, what's appropriate in situations and, we we have to also kind of examine some of our our own uh, iniquities and biases and things like that in a situation where we were in a prolonged campaign where we had an air force, we had drones, we had air support, we had medevac helicopters. Our enemies did not, mm -hmm. and so if we have to sometimes have that voice of reason to say, "Hey, are we going to create more insurgents with this action because of a knee jerk reaction?" that we only know about because we have such a decisive action. We are so willing to fry a PFC rifleman for a moment decision that was made in a, uh, a split second decision that was made in a moment of panic uh, with life and death on the wrist. They pulled the trigger on the wrong person and now they go to the brig and now their career is over. Now they're going to spend the rest of their life in jail because of a situation like that. But we have an instance of this drone strike where we had eyes on for a prolonged period of time, there was no immediate danger to that person who was behind the joystick. There's no immediate danger to the person who authorized the decision or the five people above that that probably have to sign off on it. But yet we expect the PFC 19 year old who was there with a hundred pounds on their, on their, on their kit in 110 degree weather, you know, 40 degree Celsius. I think if that converts right, you know, they're, they're scared. They've been in firefights. They've lost friends. They're sweating their eyes. They see something. They make a momentary decision, and it was a bad call, and now they're going to be in the brig for the rest of their life. But yet somebody who is experienced, has lots of brass on their shoulders, is from a place of comfort, a place of intelligence, analysis, resources, safety, and then they make a bad call, and there's no responsibility. There's no accountability for a situation like that. That doesn't bode well. How can you be more critical of somebody who makes a decision that costs a lot less in ramifications and who's not supposed to be in that decision-making seat? There's a reason why PFCs don't lead brigades. There's a reason why Lance Corporals don't authorize big missions because they're not supposed to make those decisions. But the people who are expected to have the maturity, the experience, and the authority to make those decisions are often the ones who are held the least accountable. May I, I agree. And like... You know, and again, there's an argument for and against this, but I've I've heard that like in the Marine Corps, if you get a DOI, your career is effectively over. You know, and you can make an argument for and against that. Personally, I lean against, but um, the idea that like blowing on a fucking breathalyzer test should cost you a career and waste in a family who had nothing to do with, um, and I think that the tragedy of that cabal drone strike as well was this is a family that bought into the american idea you know worked for an american ngo wanted to move to america you know they believed in what like they believed in the cause and for what wiping that family out like less repercussions in a dui i mean that doesn't stand like a morality test it doesn't stand a logic test um i think it's quite terrible and you know 
when we look at there, there's over 40,000 civilian casualties in the Iraq war, you know, that's more than 10, nine 11s. Um, and like, you know, again, I'm, I think we were justified in going into Afghanistan initially, but you know, it seems, and this is something I kind of think strongly about, you know, with remembrance day and stuff is you need to remember those people too, because those weren't bad guys. Those are fucking people. Um, I saw a report out the other day, you know, Britain had paid for something like 150 kids killed um, in a certain amount of years. They paid out like 150 grand. So there's not even like, there's not like a financial incentive not to kill civilians. There's not, doesn't seem to be like a, when you get to the higher levels, it doesn't seem to be a moral incentive. Um, yeah. You know, this, this whole term collateral damage is a very nice way of saying a fucking kid got his fucking head blown 100 meters in a different direction to his body. Um, and if we are going to, if we are going to say that we're the good guys, if we are going to say that we're going around, I guess very nice to say that, oh, we're standing up for democracy and that kind of thing. But it's like, well, that's fucking great. But the, the, the reality of the situation is that we just killed fucking tens of thousands of fucking civilians. And, you know, if, if at the end of that, you get something which was worth those that you could say, you know what, fucking tens of thousands of civilians died. But we've for the millions left, they now have unequivocally a better life. You can make an argument for it. But when you like you, you leave with the Taliban replacing the Taliban and those forty thousand civilian dead, um it it just it's very at the very least, people should not be progressing. The people that were calling the shots there at the very least should not be in those positions anymore. And obviously that does not happen. And it's not good incentive to ask the next generation to make sacrifices similar to the generation sacrifices that we've made, that Vietnam and other you know, World War II generations made. It's not good incentive to ask future uh, generations to make similar sacrifices when you know our leaders have had such a history of mismanaging those resources, which are human lives. Right, and I think that's kind of part of it. It's like... And I think it's worth stating as well that I would go back and do it all over again in a fucking heartbeat, um, even knowing what I know now. Why? Because machine guns are fun. They're so much fun. No, um, but this is kind of the responsibility you have when you know you have a bunch of people who want to go out and get after it. You have a responsibility to make sure you point them in the right direction for the right reasons. Um, they're supposed to be adults in the room, and they were not there. <laughs> You know, I don't think there's a coincidence that a male orgasm lasts about as long as a good machine gun burst should. <laughs> That's some pretty long bursts, bro. Well, I used to. I'm getting on a bit now. The Peter North days are gone. <laughs> die, motherfucker, die. <laughs> ah, go to sleep. <laughs> but we um we we um uh, don't want to end this on a uh, depressing note because I I know it is late over there for you. And I, I don't come want you to machine guns. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm erect. I don't know about you. <laughs> I'll be awake for hours. Um, uh, so uh, is there anything about MVP that we didn't get to talk about that, uh, that you think people need to know? Um, not really. I mean, I don't want to try Like, it's one of those movies. We got a lot of veterans involved. It was the first time doing it for a few of us. We shot on a, a low budget, and I think Nate really worked wonders on it. Um, I think he's a really good dude doing really good things. He genuinely fucking cares about what he's doing. Um I mean, hopefully one day we will, but what I'll say is like this project was not about, we may fucking like me and him, like made nothing out of this. It was, it was a 
you know they call it usually people do passion projects at the end of their career when, when, when they've got a lot of money we kind of did this this back to front but um like i said earlier man if it helps a couple of people um if it helps a couple of veterans if it helps a couple of athletes if it helps a couple of family members then that's kind of what's in, important to me on it and um it's it's like it's it's cool bro it's it's a privilege to be a part of something like this it was really cool to go out there for the premiere and meet a lot of the veterans that were involved in it um because i wasn't there for filming and everything because it was during covid so i couldn't travel to the us um so it was really great seeing those guys everyone smashed it and it was really it was really fucking cool to be part of a team effort like books are a team effort don't get me wrong you know you you can't do a book without your copy editors your editors you know friends who give you opinions on it like so books are a team effort but a movie is it's like we're talking like company scale and it was really cool to be a part of something like that i'm very grateful for it and grateful to nate and grateful for everyone else that was part of it well it's amazing to hear um it is um mvp and it is out on amazon prime it is in theaters uh so go check it out uh garrett where can we find you on social media um at grj books um i'm pretty heavily shadow banned from my <laughs> terrains over the last couple of years um and also at veteran state of mind um we do the podcast over there um i've not been putting out that much content recently because i've been on the road for a couple of months but we kind of get back into the swing of things now um we have uh, and- we have great guests on there and sometimes we just do rants and bands which are a little bit we just kind of look at politics and stuff and do it a little bit try and try and make it a little kind of comedic a bit like what's yeah. bit really and uh, there is a, a deep library of previous episodes uh, that people can catch up on um, while they're waiting for new content. You, like you said, you've had amazing guests um, like me. No, I'm kidding. But you've, you've had people that are like Victoria Cross recipients and like um, just like a, a whole pl- uh, list of just a, a amazing guests. So everyone, please check out Veteran State of Mind. Yeah, bro. Like there's one, if someone was uh, um, around this kind of time of year, um, I reposted one recently with a guy called Harry Billinge, who he landed on Gold Beach on D-Day. Uh, he passed away earlier this year, but like yeah. one of his best lines in there was, I never took a prisoner. Um, so that will give you <laughs> some insight into his mind, but like an absolute character. Um, we've got a lot of American veterans vet, uh, veterans on there. We got It's pretty much a 50-50 split with guests of um, US vets, British vets. Uh, we've had some Aussies on there. Um, we, try, we try and mix it up. Sometimes we go really serious and, you know, we'll kind of take a deep dive into a subject with someone maybe on, on kind of politics and things. Um, and, you know, we've had guys like Carl Malentes on there, you know, author of Matt Horn, obviously like quite a deep episode. And then we've had other episodes on who just my mates and we just take the piss. <laughs> well, fantastic. Uh, Garrett, thank you so much for, for joining us again here on the smoke pit. Uh, you got any save rounds, anything else you'd like to, to leave our listeners with? No, bro, just really good. I mean, you, you, the smoke pit was one of the reasons I started Veteran State of Mind. Um, so I'm, it's always a pleasure to come on, mate. I'm glad things are going well for you. And for anyone listening, um, thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking with the entire episode. Appreciate you guys. And um, yeah, just thanks very much, mate. Appreciate it. Fantastic. Fair winds, following seas. We'll see you next time here in the smoke pit.